0: podcast is part of the sports social podcast network welcome to series two go hey guys welcome to the tapping go my
1: name is Grant. my name is freddy each week we bring you your rugby fix with interviews with past and present rugby professionals and we get their views on the latest sporting issues we are back welcome to series two of the tapping go where we have bigger and better aims in the series with new guests new topics and much much more Better to start then with a three-time Six Nations winner, winner of International Try of the Year, two-time IRB World Player of the Year nominee, an Ireland legend, Jamie Heaslip. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? I'm good, guys. I'm good. Thanks for, for having
2: me on. It's always fun to uh, reminisce about rugby in the past and talk about rugby very much in the here and the now. So um, great to be a part of it.
0: I'm sure. So I guess with quarantine going on at the moment, or just finishing up, did you pick up any hobbies?
2: Did I pick up any hobbies? Um, Not really, no. Uh, I I tend to work from home quite a bit anyway um, so you know there's less preparation because I'm not preparing for games or talks or um, that sort of thing but in terms of you know I I do a lot of kind of uh, performance coaching and career transition coaching and um, executive coaching so uh all that stuff is done via zoom as opposed to in person and um, so that was you know still have different clients on that front um, but just not a whole lot of rugby really to be kind of studying up on and um, mm. so a bit of time back on that but plenty of things to read and all sorts of stuff like
1: mm. so we're obviously moving more into your career now as a player so obviously you're at Leinster And you, part of the squad that won back-to-back kind of cups in that second year, you won the Pro 12 as well. So, what was it like being part of such a successful squad?
2: Um, It was amazing. Like, I'm I'm very, very lucky to be a part of um, a time in kind of, I suppose, Irish rugby/slash Leinster rugby, um, where you know we we kind of created something that hadn't been there before. so if you like, even if I go back to the very start of my career, you know, all Lenser really won is, I think, I think they'd won a Celtic Cup, it was called or something back, way back, um, and I remember, you know, we were sitting down in around 07, I think, time, 08 with Cheka, and kind of really trying to get a get a goal in our head, like a, a like almost like a dream goal, you know, because I mean, when I was young, the goal was. I wanted to be like Simon Gagan and play for Ireland. Um, and so that was a bit of a, a very ambitious, like at eight years old, like I didn't know what <laughs> I was going to become or do, you know what I mean? Um, but as I kind of went through the different grades and things were happening for me and, you know, um, different end goals and kind of performance and perform uh, process kind of goals were, were getting ticked off and I was kind of moving up that ladder. And um, you, you started realising you know those dream goals can actually become a bit feasible and I, I suppose for leinster um that's that's kind of what happened for us where we we kind of had this idea of let's create a legacy um let's make people proud of of the jersey so what does that mean we broke that back to an end goal of winning the heineken cup and you know what does that mean you got to get consistent with your results in the season you got to win um got to get out of your group in Europe you got to uh, get past the quarter final semi final um, you know you got to win a it was called the Celtic League at the time you know not be able capable of winning uh, a league and that that was a great measure of consistent success because at the time it was there was no knockout at the end for a good few years of the Celtic League it was just whoever had the most points come the end of the season um which i always think i actually think is quite interesting but anyway um but it, that's that's kind of to be part of that journey and have that ambitious dream goal at the start, and then actually, it it it's sort of as you tick off these different things. With Leinster, you know, uh, 08, sorry, uh, two thousand six, we get to a semi final, and um, two thousand seven. I don't think we actually get ever. Do we get ever group in two thousand seven? I don't think we do actually. Uh, in in. Uh, 08, 09, we, we win. You know, uh, 2010, we get to a semi final. 2011, we win. 2012, we win. 2013. Um, we don't get out of a group, but we go on and win Challenge Club, you know, and, and, and all these things became a bit of a, 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 a very much reality and gave us a lot of confidence. And as a group, um, it, you know, to be part of that group through that transition um, and realization of a, of a dream goal was, was, you know, very, very lucky to be part of that.
1: What do you think made the squad so successful on the whole?
2: Uh, oh, like there's, there's, there's a load of different things. Um, we had, uh, you know, we had talent in terms of, of the individuals and the, the collective, a uh, player wise, um, uh, coach management, backroom staff wise, um, facility wise, uh, and, and then mindset and culture. Um, you know, in terms of what what could happen, uh, what did happen and um, how, how we shaped that, how we all bought into it and um, the different challenges you know, because you have a group of like player wise, you know, you have 50 or 60 players. If you include the academy, you have 50 or 60 players that you somehow are able to get them to agree on a shared kind of uh, value set and culture and behaviours. Um, that eventually manifests itself, obviously, in success on the pitch, but a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes around that and be able to do that consistently. Um, as well as everything else feel into it, you know, our the academy system, which I was the first crop basically to to come through, uh that, that academy system as it is now. Um, we're very lucky to have a crop that my kind of peer group that came through, you know, Johnny and and Rob Carney would be part of that um crop, and, and obviously you see like it just produces this this unbelievable production line of players who just keep coming through, who feed into it, as well as having dotted with with experience from abroad. So you get different perspectives on things, and, and you get collaboration. Um, you know, it's a very very powerful powerful combination. Uh, it, so it's very hard to say it's any one
0: thing, but you can definitely break it down into its different silos and and work on each one. Mm-hmm quite interesting because we had Joe to mind last week, and he spoke about the academy system at Leinster was, and sort of the um the pathway at Leinster was really what made it so special. Yeah. But um, I guess previously you just mentioned Czech, and um, I guess you've had great coaches like himself and uh, Joe Schmidt and so on. Can you just talk br- quickly about sort of like the influence that these coaches had on you as a player at Leinster?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've been really lucky, particularly in just if we look at it just from a Leinster perspective in terms of the, the, the calibre of coaches that I've, I've been lucky to be under um, and work with. I mean, you had, uh, well, oh, firstly, the first person I've actually gave me my contract was Declan Kidney, but by the time I was started, so he gave me my contract in like, I think I signed it in February, March, April time um, and started in June and he was gone already he had gone to Munster by that stage and um, so uh, but then Cheka came in and I, I was very lucky with him because he was the back row he was young ambitious and uh, coming from a very different mindset of if you're if you're good enough you're old enough and very forward thinking in terms of uh, how he wanted to play the game and then and then separate to that um under his kind of uh, his coaching staff i was lucky to have uh, mc brewer who was a, an all black in the back row as well and Noxy, david Knox, who was a very he just saw at the time rugby from a very different perspective he was a backs coach but very much wanted back row playing with backs so I was very lucky to kind of get that sweet spot and then um following on from that you you know i was very lucky to have um you know, Joe, who came in uh, very ambitious and had John Gibbs as well, who was a forwards coach, but he was a back row, you know. Um, and Joe, who had his particular type of style, which a lot of us uh, thrived under. Um, and then to, to, at the very end of it, to have people like uh, Stuart Lancaster come in, uh, who, who, in my opinion, is is. is you know, him and Joe are. I, I, I'm openly. I'll say they're the two best coaches I've ever worked with. Um, and I think Michael Cheka uh, is probably. You know, he's up there in the top five for me as well. And um, when I look at all the different international coaches I I, I worked with, and um, all very quite different. Uh, Joe and Stewart are very similar in how they do it, but very different in their philosophy. And um, from what I saw, but uh, just very lucky uh, to be at them because, like Joe. Checo for his era and timing was the ideas that he brought were quite new, definitely to Northern Hemisphere Rugby, uh, if not Southern Hemisphere Rugby so that got us to the competitive edge and then Joe brought in uh, kind of built on that layer and foundation that he that, that Checo had and brought almost like an innovative way of playing as well which gave us an edge and then Stuart has brought another evolution of that so we continually are getting getting in, in a Leinster perspective Leinster are continually getting um a competitive edge on others and I, I I don't think a lot of people can argue with that right now in terms of Leinster's dominance um across their domestically and you know they're always there thereabouts in in Europe over the last you know <clears throat> ever since really you know two thousand and uh, well t- since 2009 they've won uh, four uh, European championships and you know they're, they're, they could have had five, uh, albeit they were beaten fairly by a better team on a day in Saracens last year. But you know they're in the running again, and it's, you know I'm looking at Saracens and Leinster going at it in a quarter final, and I'm like, the winner of that is is probably favourite for the competition.
0: Sure. So I guess they say um, if Toulouse rugby is strong, then French rugby is strong. And that's quite a similar link, I feel, with Leinster and Ireland. Could you quickly talk about that link between, I guess, a pathway from Leinster to Ireland and sort of why there are so many who cross?
2: Well, I mean, I think if you go to any country, the, the side that's probably the most dominant in the domestic and European league, it usually is the one that gets a lot of players into the international, so that's just kind of the natural way. You, know, you go to England, Saracens. You go to um, I don't know, France is probably Toulouse or Racine or something. You know what I mean? Like it, it's it's kind of that gets played out uh, over and over. But um, I think the fact that Ireland Ireland obviously is a lot smaller, we have four teams to pick from essentially, because um, they they tend to not pick players that are playing abroad. Um, you know, but we, you know, Leicester have been the dominant side and they produce, you know, we're very, very lucky because of the, you know, the the team is based in the capital of the country Um, you know, the majority of the, uh, no, I think nearly 25% of the population um, are, you know, 20, 25% are in the county of Dublin as, a, as such. Um so we have a, bit, a, a bigger playing pool to pick from, which you can see from our school system and our youth system, we have a bigger player pool to pick from, which is why the academy is so strong. And the fact that they they have the academy uh, in, in such a good um, setup. Um, but there, you can never rest in your laurels and you kind of evolve it. And I, I think that's why they've kind of stayed uh, dominant. But, um, you know, players are moving around more and more because um, there's obviously natural bottlenecks and play- players are realizing that and I'm moving to other uh, provinces and clubs. Um, you know, Joey Carvey, for example, down in, down in Munster is just one that jumps off the top of my head. Um, but that's probably why they they have uh, had an knock effect, but it hasn't all necessarily been true uh, in terms of if if the Irish clubs are doing well, the international side is doing well. I mean, for a long time, that actually wasn't the case at all. Um, you know, Leinster had a dominant phase there. You know, we won in 2009, uh, 11, 12, and 14, uh, 14, wasn't it? No, sorry, uh, 13, uh, just 11, and 12. Sorry, um, but we hadn't had any real success since 2009 uh, with an international, uh, in an international capacity. Um, and, you know, when Joe came in, obviously he took a lot of Leinster players because he kind of, that's what he knew, but he had to be quite conscious at the same time in terms of not isolating others in the group. And he was very good at at getting everyone that philosophy that he had because Leinster guys would have known it, but getting everyone else on that same philosophy and a lot of collaboration and stuff went on behind the scenes of players talking to each other to get everyone on the same page and in, in his philosophy, the way he wanted to play and what the expectations were. Um, and that really uh, kicked us on and brought us uh, to another level. I mean, it brought them all the way to number one in the world. Um, um, and they were, you know, they were up there for favourites coming into the world cup, but I mean, they, they, I think they obviously peaked a little bit too early and didn't uh, actually evolve their game a whole lot. Um, That that, you know, when they got to the top, you need to. That's why the All Blacks have been so dominant dominant for so long. They get to the top, evolve the game. Uh, England, South Africa. You know, you could you could like England two years out, eighteen months, two years out, change their squad to essentially and change the way they were playing to a certain degree. South Africa did the exact same thing. And I remember that November series. I think was. I think it was November Series 17 and you know you could see glimpses of oh particularly with South Africa you're like oh whoa um, these guys are sending a warning sign right now um, and you've you got to change your game if you don't um, and and you know the, the the proof was in the pudding come um, World Cup last year.
1: Brilliant. So moving more into your international career now so obviously I think you're the thousandth player to win an Irish cap we're wondering whether there have been some stories about, read about initiations for a player on their debut or after making their first cap. If you had a story about yours?
2: Oh, well, I mean, the, the, I mean, was there any real traditions? Yeah, like, I mean, the, the, the main tradition, to be honest, was, um, and I'm pretty sure it's still probably in uh, force. Um, is, well, obviously there's a song, you gotta sing your song, top of the bus, and actually that's probably the scariest one, um, because they are brutal in terms of (laughs) liking the song or not. Um, But then at the post-match function, or actually pretty much from any time where you get off the field, um, at the time it was very much, well, uh, a player on your team and the opposition team on the day actually can come up to you with a drink, and you have to have that drink. So they have one; they have the same drink as you, and you both have that drink. That's fine for them because they do one. And um, it's not great when every member of the squad is coming up to you, or you know, or their squad as well. And um, that gets yourself in some hot water pretty quickly. And 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 uh, I've seen some guys um, kind of fall. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, have some struggles with that throughout the night. All right, uh, after their first cap, but. Um, you know otherwise, there's not a whole lot of other caps um or whole other traditions that are in there. um you know the, the guy might get his jersey given presented to him by a, a past player or someone important to him um in the hotel as opposed to um or the night before maybe, as opposed to uh, on the day because if you are already capped, when you come into the um change room, the jersey's on the peg. Um, because, you know, the jersey isn't yours, it's the team. So that's, you, you take it off the peg, you put it back on the peg and you just make sure you leave it in a better place. But the only difference for a new capper is that they usually have it um, from, from the hotel.
1: Mm-hmm. What's song did thing? sing? Yeah. Pardon? What was your song that you, you uh, sang on the bus?
2: Wow, uh, oh 06, what would it be in my song? I don't know. I, I can't remember. I do know my song became Nelly Hutton here. Um, and that, that, that became my song, um, and that was yeah. That's got me in trouble because I think I think I did that over. Um, Why did I do that? I did it on national radio here once before, and um, we got called out on that. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's been the song. That's <laughs> what I'm most known for. Infamously known for, anyway.
0: Sure. So I guess that O nine season where Ireland won the Grand Slam. Could you quickly just talk us through, I guess, the success behind it and sort of what you went through as a squad?
2: Um so that squad, if you recall if you look at that squad, right, they, they came off the back of an old, very, very disappointing O seven World Cup and um there was a lot of lads who ended up in that 0-9 team who didn't go in the World Cup. Um myself um, Luke Fitzgerald, uh, did Tommy Bowe go to the World Cup? You'd have to fact-check that one for me. Um, Tommaso Leary, Rob Kearney, um, you know. So we we were hungry to prove a point, and we were young. We were naive. We didn't like we had no idea of what was kind of expected or how hard it was to win uh, Six Nations or anything like that. We just want to go and play, you know, and show what we were about. Um, so that, you had that factor, you had a, you had a new coaching um, group, you had Gert Small, you had uh, Les Kiss, and you had Decky uh, there. So with that, that was their first season. So with that, they had new ideas, so everything was fresh, you know what I mean? And um, that always has an injection in a squad, like always. Um, so you got that bump as well as... Uh, as well as a new kind of, you had a real good blend of basically kind of young guys coming through, and, and, and an old cohort of players who had been through the ringer, and um, who had uh, tasted um, a little bit of success, but not enough. Um, if anything, they were under pressure. They're being, I think, if I recall at the time, they're being called the golden generation that weren't really going to win anything at, at that point. All they'd really won was like triple crowns and stuff. And I can, I. I the triple crown while it was great at the time is something from the past you know Um for me it's always been oh that's nice but it's not you don't really win anything with a triple crown like the six nations is the competition you're playing for so that's what you want to win so these guys are like oh well I've won triple crowns it's like you know what is like uh, have you lifted a six nations trophy like no um, so so you know, you had a blend of guys that's what I mean. You had a blend of these guys who tasted that, knew how bloody hard it was to try and win a Six Nations, um, and only had a couple of trip grounds. Then you had a group of lads who just wanted to play and and hadn't done anything. You know, myself, Tommy, and and Tomas, for example, had been to a final of the 21s World Cup, so we were like, like, Yeah, we're as good as anyone, you know, we want to just play. So, between that and the coaching staff, and the freshness, the newness, and um, and the fact that. You know that you need a bit of luck as well in Six Nations. The way the games landed, we had uh, France and England at home, um, and in Crow Park as well, which meant you had eighty odd thousand uh, screaming, mad Irish people. Um, ba- ba- you know, looking for blood basically, um, and getting behind us. And and we got off to a great start in the France game, and and once we got that momentum. Um, you know, the, the games panned out really well for us in terms of the, the I think it was, it was France, then Italy, and then a break. And then we had England, then a break. And then we had um, Scotland and and Wales. And, and, and just even, you know, so you had a couple of those factors that kind of added to um, being able to control a lot of things and get early momentum in the competition and then really break it down into one game at a time kind of scenario, which which, you know, paid dividends with that group.
1: So obviously at the end of two thousand nine you're then nominated for RB the Year. Was this expected from your counterparts? Obviously you probably knew you'd been playing well, but uh
2: definitely not from me. And 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 then to be like in the company of uh Drico who I was and still am adamant that like uh he was a shoe in that year. Um no offense to Richie McCall who got it. I just think Dricko was a shoe in for that year. Um between that and the lines and um just everything you know what I mean the the, the previous uh November series uh, all that stuff anyway um it just being their company I was like jesus that's a bit mad isn't it um but it, it was look it was very humbling Um it was a, a great rocket booster for uh wanting to get hungrier and wanting to kick on and 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 try and stay at that level or get better um so you could add more value to the jersey um and uh, yeah, it, you know, it, it was nice to be in their company, but I, I still thought I was miles away from from their standards. So it was a great motivating tool for me.
0: Yeah. and you also, I guess, had the highest honor of an international player of captaining your country. Well, I guess when you first came as captain, was there anything that you particularly wanted to change from the squad and sort of freshen up? Um, no, yeah, not really. Like at the time, I suppose
2: I was very much like I will just kind of lead by example, and um, but I probably learned more about leadership in that year and the following years on the Paul O'Connell than I ever did, in, in terms of trying to take a bit of more of a macro view, um, uh, you know, and, and how to be, you know regardless you know you got to be self-aware but you also got to be kind of um what's the word like socially aware of of, of yeah. the environment as well as managing different relationships and um, and then manage your se- self-management as well and i was very good at the self-awareness and the self-management but you know needed to work on on that kind of social aware uh, dynamic i suppose um but yeah you were just very proud to be able to um Try and, and represent your 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 team through examples, um, you know, and, and and worry about playing rugby. Uh, but you know, as I learned, there's a lot more to it than just focusing on yourself and focusing on playing rugby. There's a there's 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 a lot more eyes and stakeholders, uh, or you know, in, in that you that you have to manage.
1: So obviously, in 2016, you then won try of the year and so obviously that try was sort of it was quick rugby offloading everything was that something Ireland were trying to do or was that just a, a one off and it came off
2: uh no not definitely not at that time it was not uh something that we were uh actively doing i suppose um but we just one of those I, I, you know for me i i'm i feel a bit embarrassed get winning that try <laughs> if i'm honest um Yeah, I was just lucky. I I ran that line hundreds of times, you know what I mean? And never been on the end of it. It's usually a winger going in or a centre going in. If you actually look at it, Ferg McFadden is so reluctant to pass me the ball at the end of it. Um, Especially when he looks up and he sees me. I think he's like, oh, Jesus. Um, But uh, look, it was... I think it typified uh, typified the team at the time. There was a lot of individual talent in that team that worked very well together. Um, I mean, particularly the backs. I mean, like Sexton, uh, Zeev, Sharpayne, Trimby, um, uh, Ferg, you know, they all kind of link up. I think there's something like 11, 12 passes in that, in that phase of play. Um and I think it's that sweep of movement, obviously from 22 to try, try line is, is is what's so appealing. Um, and, and that it is a really good collective uh, try as such, um, and not down to any one individual brilliance. I actually like honestly, I felt so embarrassed going up and collecting the word. I was just like, I didn't really do anything. I fell over the line. But uh, I'll take it on behalf of the lads. Thanks. Uh, um, but look, yeah, I think that typified Joe's uh, process of, of, of the collective being stronger than any one individual. Um, and it was, so in, in that regard, uh, it was a very proud moment to be at the receiving end of, of the collective.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess like on the international stage, who would you say is sort of the toughest opposition, opposition that you've played against? Like someone that you see on the team oh. like, oh...
2: Yeah, well, I, I tell you, um, uh, Thierry Dussetois used to be like, I was just like, oh, man, this is going to hurt today. Um, he was just like, he he was just, he, he's not a big man when you see him, um, but just, it's, he's just concrete. He's just, you know, and, and he just keeps coming. Either, well, either when you have the ball or when he has the ball, he just keeps coming. Um, and he's an awfully nice fella. Um but he was always a nightmare to play against. Um, in terms of eights, Sergio was always quite difficult because he was never afraid to try anything. Uh, and also, obviously, he's he's athletically gifted as well, but he, he was always looking to try something new. So you always have to do your homework on him and then always be ready for like, who knows what he's going to do here as well. So um, the unexpected is always quite dangerous. Um, and then when I look around at other players, um you know, I, I think Manu Tulangi was always probably one of the most difficult, and in a really weird way, I I I, I somewhat underestimated him until I actually played with him in 2013 on the lines. Like you just thought he was an absolute, you know, beast of a man, like just a huge human who had pace. You know what I mean? And um, but actually, when you play with him, you realise that a he has a great footballing mind, really underrated footballing mind, mind, and his his distribution and his skill set. Are really underrated as well like he he like he's a he's a serious baller you know what I mean and I think I got a real um what's the word I'm looking for uh appreciation for him even more so after 2013 lines but but playing against him up until that point and and since um yeah he was he, he was like basically having a back in the center field that had wheels you're like
1: you know, it's Where do you think he should be going now? Obviously, he's just been released from Leicester.
2: I don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's a strange time for players. I mean, you you've got a couple of dynamics at play. You know, does he? You know, you have this this policy that that certain unions um, enforce, which is they're not picking players if they're not playing in the in, in the country. Uh, you have. So you have that. So then it, then, it becomes okay. Do you want to play? Do you want to play international footy or not? Um, and sometimes it's not even as clean as that because rugby players are. You have a very, very finite time to play rugby. I think the average career length is six years, seven years. So he's probably on. He's on borrowed time, and he knows all about injury. You don't have to tell Manu anymore about injury. And um, so he has a finite time to, to um, make. Uh, income that will set him up because he's going to, you know, you don't, it's not like soccer or other big professional sports. You don't make enough. The majority of players don't make enough to set themselves up for life and they have to work again. So he has to weigh in all that stuff as well. So it, it's not a very uh, simple choice. And then the other thing that comes into it is, you know, with COVID and stuff like that, you know, do you want to be going abroad? Don't you want to be going abroad? Um What's the market dynamic over in, in such a place? You know, is right now there's very little rugby on TV. So is, is there money in the sport right now? Are clubs going to be forking out the money when they don't know what what's going to be happening? So there's a whole load of of uncertainties there and it make the decision making very, very
0: difficult.
1: One of the biggest ones as you just touched on there was going on a Lions tour and you were fortunate enough to go on too. Just focusing more on Australia in twenty thirteen. We're wondering, so the first two games were really close. I think it was two points in it in both. Yeah. And then the third test was suddenly a Twenty-five point difference. Obviously, you didn't plan it, but as a squad or as being a spectator, what really changed between the two different um, games? I think,
2: I think in both games, <sighs> not that the scoreline flattered Australia, but like we had let <laughs> them into the we had let them into the game at certain points, and we'd made mistakes that we got punished for. But that's the sign of a good team where they punish you for the mistakes. Um, but you know. Come the last week, they didn't make any mistakes. Most, of the, all the kind of launch plays paid off, um, and and we, and we just we just cut them open. Um, so I think that's what the difference was. It's 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 that kind of simple when you look back, and um, and in a really weird weird way like it's, it's 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 when i look back i have gone. what actually was the tougher series was it the south africa one or or the um australia one and the south africa one was you know miles tougher i i i to to this day the toughest game i have ever played in is that second test in in 2009 against mm. that's without doubt the toughest game i've ever played in.
0: yeah i think there were like highlight videos on youtube of just that the brutal hits and sort of oh. the conflicts in that game <laughs>
2: it was like i mean even for you it was chalk and cheese even in terms of the physicality that was allowed in the game uh, you know what i mean um, hmm. so i'm not saying that was good or bad it was just it was it, it was what it, it, it was what it was at the time that was just the way it was played um, and different things have come into it since but uh, yeah it was it was brutal you're also going up against the Current world champions, which sets it up very, very nicely for uh, next season in terms of the lines going down there against the world champions
0: again. <coughs> so, I guess with so the,
1: Oh, Sorry. So, obviously, your career got brought short because of injury, and I think your contract with Leinster would have ended in 2020, wouldn't it, if you had been fit? What if, how yeah, did you sort of go about. Soon. Yeah, so how, how did you sort of go about coping? Because obviously, you never actually got to play your final game, having been ruled out of the test with injury.
2: Yeah, um, it's it's a mad one. Like I, I, I would have been one of the players that would have probably been a little bit more better prepared than others. But um, what I've realised is that it's still it's still very very difficult for players transitioning out. Um, there's not enough been done uh, by by people in the game to help with that because people don't realize the sacrifice that you actually have to make to have a professional career. Um, you give up a lot in terms of being able to pursue any other career or craft or trade, um, really, because the game is quite all-consuming um, and it's very hard to get any sort of consistency in anything else when you have, like, your body is your job, essentially, you know? Um, so... so uh but you do it because you love it um <laughs> that's that's the mad thing about it you just don't care um but uh, and that's why actually coming back to manu's point that's why it's 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 a very tricky decision for him. but um yeah it was a tough two years um you know i i i ended up working in google full-time for about 13 months but i've kind of come back out now on my own uh, i invest in a couple different businesses while playing and um, still in some of them, sold others and uh now I'm I'm uh, an executive and high performance coach. Um, but I do I, I do work in coaching in terms of career transitioning and, and um, I, I like um, you know when possible to to help players transition out and prepare for transitioning out of the game.
0: Hmm. So I guess as our final question, we we ask all our guests what their favourite moment of their career was. What would yours be?
2: Oh, Oh, that's a good one. Um, that's a very good one. I, you know what? Like, I I kind of have I. Mm, I have two that's like I've I've had. I'm really lucky. I've been part of the teams We had some class moments, right? But one of the best, I, I kind of two that stand out is, um, two thousand and nine uh, winning the Grand Slam. Um that was just mental that whole couple of days afterwards was just that it was just a mental time um I don't think I slept for about three days so it was, yeah it was, uh, it was just wild you know I mean we come back there was like almost like one of the main streets in Dublin was blocked off and there was literally tens of thousands of people um there who you know it's just something that they've never done since uh with uh, the team they've won the six nations um so that was just mad and then the other it was just a pretty special time as well you know we just it kind of shook off this thing that hasn't been done for you know i think god 40 30 40 odd years um in ireland Uh so that was a pretty amazing moment and then i if i'm honest 2011 um when we won the heineken cup and we came back against northampton in the second half there's there's one particular moment where we are you know, and, and bloody European rugby showed us the whole time as they hyped the game. It's, we're all in a circle and the cup is right in the middle. No one's actually lifting the cup. It's just in the middle of the players and everyone's in a circle and we're just dancing, going mental. And, and it was just like no one believed that we could do it at halftime. We did it. Um, this collective did it, a real group effort who were all driven towards lifting that trophy. And, and, and we had done it um, and we'd done it the way we wanted to. <coughs> it was a very, very proud moment. Mm.
0: Well, Jamie, yeah. I'd just like to say, thank you so much for coming onto our podcast. It was a cracker of a season ap- opener. Um, and yeah, I guess like it was really interesting hearing all about, I guess, Leinster rugby and Irish rugby and all those stories that come in between. Well, look, uh, thanks so, so much.
2: It, it's good to give a, an Irish spin on it for you guys.
0: <laughs> for
1: sure. Yeah, thank you so much.
0: Well, no thank, worries, for all, thank you for all you viewers listening. Don't forget to follow us on our Instagram at the Tap and Go to get all sneak peeks. Cheers.
1: Thanks, guys. Oh, double.
2: Double. Sports Social Podcast Network.